Good morning. God is so faithful. And as you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5, just a reminder that Samuel's story is reminding us that God is faithful to his promises, even though Israel, the Israelites failed to trust God, to follow him, to obey as they, as they should have, could have, by his grace and goodness. God was faithfully moving his people along, fulfilling his redemption plan. Would you turn with me again to 1 Samuel chapter 5? I'll be reading the first 12 verses as we look at this chapter and chapter 6 today as well. Beginning at verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it to Ebenezer to Ashdod, took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it before Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face in the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priest of Dagon nor nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark back of the God of Israel way. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray together. Father and God, again we come before you now. We've been singing your praises. We've been reminded of your faithfulness. Lord, teach us even more about your greatness. Let us leave here today knowing that you are God and believing it is true and living differently because of it. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Christ our Savior, the God who came to save us. Amen. Are we ever careless with God? Do we treat him like an everyday person? Do we forget to be grateful and thankful? Do we treat him as ordinary? (laughs) There was a young boy who came in from play. He was hungry. He came running in and said, Mom, I'm hungry. And his mom looked at him lovingly, gave him a healthy, juicy apple. His eyes lit up, turned around, and he ran toward the door. And just before he crashed through the screen door, his mom said, Hey, what do you say? turned, looked at his mom, looked at the apple, and he raised it up and said, peel it. 
Several years ago, the North Carolina Medical Board suspended the license of a brain surgeon. They'd done a little investigation and discovered that in the middle of one of the surgeries, the doctor had left the operating room and gone to lunch for 25 minutes. While there was no other doctor there to take care of the patient if there was complications. Another time they found out that he had let a nurse who was not trained to drill into the skull of a patient, he let the nurse drill in. So they suspended his license. <laughs> if I needed brain surgery, maybe I do, <laughs> I'd want the medical team to treat that procedure something very special, something very holy, something set apart, not casually, but very carefully. How about you? The Lord God said through the prophet Isaiah, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. If you need a reminder, just read Isaiah 40 again to remember or be reminded how great God is, how set apart he is, how transcendent he is. A little bit later on in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of of the Lord, this holy God. And that is probably the key question of this, these two chapters. Who can stand before God and survive that event? Warren Wiersbe, in his book, uh, Developing a Christian Imagination, said that preachers and teachers of God's word, and I hope you're a teacher of God's word in some form or fashion, should be creative in the way we describe God and use language that helps people picture, be able to understand how great and holy God is and his will and his plans for us. And he uses this example from the great theologian Jonathan Edwards. Maybe you're familiar with the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Just listen to these words and, and get the picture. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide, bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of the divine wrath flashing about it and ready at any moment to singe it, singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in a mediator? Nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you have ever done. Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you a moment. It's quite a picture. Well, these stories in Samuel, God's giving us a picture of how the Philistines reacted to him, the Israelites reacted to him, to help us understand how holy he is, to know who he is, to know that he is God so that we humbly surrender to him in a more daily, regular way, to let him reign over us because God wants to give us life, not death. Know that I am God. Know that the Lord is superior to all other powers. The story in 1 Samuel chapter 5 is so much fun. The Ark of the Covenant was taken into Dagon's temple. And normal activities were going on here. We get to see how people fought back then, what, the, what their worldview was. So because 
Dagon was the Philistines' god, and the Philistines had just conquered the Israelites. They assumed that their god was stronger than the god of Israel, at least at that point. So they put the Ark of the Covenant in a position of submission to the great god Dagon. It's obvious that Dagon's stronger than the god of Israel. We won. So the first night we see the Dagon, the idol, the image fell over. And the faithful priest in the morning came in and they said, Oh, great Dagon, let us help you back on your feet. (laughs) And they set him back up. Of course, then to no avail, because the second day Dagon was face down again, prostate before the throne of God. But this time his head was broken off and his hands as well. And that's no little thing, you see, because back then, if you wanted to have an accurate head count, if you were victorious in a war or a battle, you cut off heads and you counted them. You cut off hands and you counted them. Yeah, quite a picture. But here we see that the head was fallen off. The hands were broken off. And it's a foreshadowing of, you know the story about Goliath, right? And what happened. It's the story of King Saul who refused to submit to God's anointed king, David. It's a, it's a story, a commentary on what happens like to you when you disregard God's word like Eli's household had. So here we see Dagon prostrate before the Lord of heaven. Nine times it repeats in this passage that the Lord's hands were heavy on the Philistines. So here's this picture of Dagon's hands broken off, powerless, but God's hands are mighty everywhere. Ashdod, the city, probably the leading city, and Dagon might have been like their chief deity, was powerless before the God of Israel, and they were suffering great, uh, a great plague. So they sent it off to the city of Gath, and of course the same thing happened to Gath, and then they sent it to the great city of Ekron, and of course the Ekron people saw this thing coming to them. They said, not here, please. You know, wisdom reigned. Send the ark away. You see, they would have thought that Dagon would have added... Dagon's power was strong, and now we have another god with us, the god of Israel. So now we have two gods, and we can appease this. If we just learn how to appease the Israel god to make him happy, then we'll have power times two. A god of the plains, and we'll have a god of the hills, and we'll have a lot of might, and we'll be able to do whatever we want. Their secondhand knowledge of what a god of, the god of Israel had done in Egypt is now firsthand knowledge. God was making them suffer the way he had made Egypt suffered. How did they respond to this great God in power? They pushed him away. Why did they still trust in Dagon? The little threshold detail, by the way, the hands and the head fell on the threshold, which would mean that that made the threshold holy, and that's why they stepped over it, because they didn't want to touch that holy place anymore, because it was set apart. But why would you want to worship a God who's inferior to the God of Israel? Why would you be afraid of him anymore? Why would you bother serving him? It's just evidence, again, of how dull the human race is when it comes to who God really is. 
In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. I can just picture it. O great, mighty Dagon, we will still offer you our sacrifices and we will serve you forever, even as we superglue your head and hands back on and help you back onto your feet. We will worship you, almighty Dagon. We would never do that, would we? But we're really the same, we modern people. We don't bow down to idols, although there are people who still do bow down to images and worship, but don't forget that greed is an idol. Don't forget that political power and influence is an idol. And we American evangelicals are guilty of seeking political power. We trust in ourselves to eradicate evil. We do a lot of good, whether we believe in God or not. There's a lot of good people who do a lot of wonderful things in society, trying to help people raise them up. But we can never get rid of evil. We keep losing against it. It keeps rearing its ugly head. We know that money can't buy happiness, but we still play the lottery. We crave more of it. We serve it. We will kill for it. We were reminded of that this week in Havertown. We worry about it. Who has the power to deliver us from this wretchedness? Could it be Jesus Christ, the one who was raised from the dead? The one who says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The one who says, if you believe in me, even though you die, you'll live forever. Could he possibly be the one to deliver us? And will you trust him and let him reign over your life as king without reservation this morning? Let me just go down this trail of idolatry just a little further. Is it possible that you and I can make the Bible an idol rather than the God and serving the God of the Bible? Sometimes we do. We love the word of God. We should be people of the word. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to know its truths. We need to believe them truths. But the danger is that we're satisfied in knowing the truth but not letting it transform us, not obeying it, coming here and hearing it taught and spoken week after week, but never asking God to change us, never letting him examine our hearts to move us to holier and better things. Are we guilty of that, of making the Bible an idol because we know it? Listen to what Ezekiel said to the people. As for you, this is God speaking through Ezekiel, as for you, son of man, your countrymen are talking together about you at the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. 
Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Now, I know I'm not a great singer of the word of God. But we love our great teachers of the word of God. We love to hear it. We love to know it. It's valuable. But please do not love the word of God more than the God who wrote the word, who is the word. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That was Jesus talking to the Pharisees. They knew the word of God backwards and forwards, but their hearts were far from God. It's interesting. You see, the Philistines learned something about the great God of Israel. But instead of worshiping him or surrendering to him, they pushed him away. Why would the Israelites ever, ever be enticed to reject this Lord and chase after false gods? But they did. You know why? Because they didn't really know him or love him like they said because they didn't want to change. The reason the Philistines pushed them away was because it would mean they would have to give up on things they liked and followed with their God's small g. But there's hope in the gospel of Christ, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Why would we go anywhere else? So Jehovah, the Lord God Almighty, is the true God, and he's superior to all powers in heaven and earth. So know this God... And then secondly, no, the Lord is sovereign over all affairs of life. We turn to chapter 6 now, and I need to read a few of the verses. So we know that Philistines want to get rid of the ark because it's not good to have the ark in your trophy case. (laughs) If you don't have faith in the God who's represented by the ark, who's present there, then you have a blessing, you only have trouble. And it didn't help the Philistines to own this thing, to have it in a trophy case. You know, two, two gods are better than one. That's the way they thought. But it wasn't doing any good. They weren't trusting in this God. It wasn't doing the Israelites any good because they really weren't having true faith in him. And it brought trouble on him. This ark was not a, a help. It was a hindrance if they didn't have faith in the God that the ark represented. All that to say... <laughs> Know that the Lord is sovereign over all affairs of life. When the ark of the Lord, chapter 6, verse 1, when the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. 
make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and pay honor to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when he treated them harshly? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? The Philistines finally got it. After seven months, they figured out this ark is no good. Let's get rid of it. God heard their cry, it says at the end of chapter 5 and verse 12. He heard their cry. Their cry went up to him. So God was being gracious to them. In case you weren't here last week or have forgotten, the Ark of the Covenant is a box, a box made of wood. It's about two feet wide by four feet long. It's two by four. You can remember it that way, except it's a box. Had stone tablets in it. The Ten Commandments were in that. It was a reminder of God's covenant. It was a reminder of God's expectations and Israel's promise to serve God as their only God. So it had important stuff in it. It had a jar of manna in it, a reminder to them of how God had provided for them 40 years in the wilderness. When they had been so unfaithful, God faithfully provided them food day after day after day. God's provision was there. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness, even when they were unfaithful. And Aaron's rod was in there, that rod that Moses had lifted up, the rod that was used to, to, to show and display God's power. And it was a reminder when Kor's rebellion happened, Aaron's rod budded with almond buds. It was a reminder not to uh, reject or despise God or his anointed servants. So there were holy things in that ark. And God said that he would be present with it. The Philistines recognized their guilt. They had been treating the Lord God of Israel like other gods, and he was not some localized power. He was uh, not some god they could just manipulate you know, kind of like human beings, you know, scratch his back, maybe he'll scratch our back so we can get what we want, get more power, get more wealth, do our bidding. They realized it wasn't working. Instead of blessing, they were getting cursed because you have to approach God in his terms. So they offer him a guilt offering. And the gold tumors and gold rats, that's just a hint that this was probably a bubonic plague some kind of a plague. And then he decided, don't be like the Egyptians. Pharaoh had been so stubborn. We can't be so stupid as like the Egyptians were. Look what happened to them with this God of Israel. So we better get rid of it now. Let's not harden our hearts. And then they do a test. Now then, verse 7 Get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in a chest beside it. Put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us and that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with its chest of containing the gold rats and the models of tumors. 
Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. There was a life observation here. Plagues happen. So we've got to make sure that this plague's connected with the Ark of the Covenant. So we'll have some, new, some cows who have new calves, and they don't like to be separated. And they've never been under the yoke or used a yoke. They've never pulled a cart. So cows who don't, aren't used to pulling a cart won't do it very well. They, they'll go all over the place. They won't stay in a trail. They won't do a good job. So get two cows that have never pulled a cart, that have new calves, separate them, and they put the ark on the cart. You know, it's just not anyone who can touch the ark. Isn't it interesting how gracious God was to the Philistines who didn't know about this God or how holy it was that he didn't strike them dead when they handled that ark? So the cows went on their way. They missed their babies. They, lowed. they were lowing all the way. They kept on the road to Israel because God was guiding them. It wasn't by chance. It was by God's providence. Dagon falling in front of that ark and the plagues were attention getters. What did we do wrong? We mentioned this last week. When disaster strikes in your life, what does God want you to consider? Just remember, not all troubles are brought on by a specific sin. Troubles happen because we're in a broken world, because... We're in a cursed world because we're part of the human race. Sin has made the world a dangerous place. So don't attribute all the hurricanes and tsunamis and tragic accidents and sickness and terrorist attacks to a specific sin. Because that's already been done and it was foolish. But what does Jesus say? What's Jesus' advice when terrible things happen. In Luke chapter 13, we read this beginning at verse 1. Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Just a reminder. Nations, Christians, check your heart. When difficult things, times circumstances come into your life, take a look at your heart and soul. Maybe those things are there because you're rebelling, or maybe not. But you know what's interesting? It's not finger-pointing time. It's self-examination time. Because the blessings on the nations begin with God's people walking humbly before their God. Do you want peace in Havertown? then serve the God of peace. Surrender to his sovereignty and his power and his practice his mercy. Love justice. 
Receive. Don't push God away. God was graciously revealing his power to the Philistines, but they were happy to remain as they were. They wanted life to go back to normal. So instead of turning to God, they said, just get them away. We'll trust in our powerless idols. We'll trust in our political system. We'll trust in our power and might right now. How many times have we, you rejected or pushed Jesus away in your life? Now, you've received him as your savior. I'll just assume that's true for everyone here today. You've believed in him. You've trusted in him. But how many times do we still push him away? Not today. I don't want to do that yet. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. When he went to his hometown and preached that he was the Messiah and said, I'm here to bring peace and to, and to deliver those who are in prison, what did the people in Nazareth want to do? They wanted to throw him off a cliff. Do you remember what happened when he healed the demoniac that was filled with thousands of demons and, they, he, and he cast them out and the man was clothed in his right mind and the people came out and saw that, wow, that, that crazy man who was running naked in the, in the, in the graveyards now and is clothed and in his right mind. And what did they do? They said, Jesus, please just leave. Go away. We don't, we don't really want that here. We don't want your power. It's too fearful. What does it mean for us? We don't want to change. In Jerusalem, what did, they, what did the Jews shout? Away with him. Away with this man. Crucify him. We don't want him. And yet here's God <laughs> inviting us to come. Rightfully, he should push us away. Every one of us. But instead he says, come and and receive life, receive salvation, receive forgiveness. I'm willing, I'm offering it to you. Come. Don't know. I'm not pushing you away. I'm saying, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me. And if you believe in me, I'll give you the right to become children of God. I'll give you God's righteousness so you can stand in his presence. Come to me. And I wonder why I don't come to Jesus more. In faith. The Philistines wanted to localize God's power. Do you ever localize God's power? We gather here to sing praises to God. We come here to study the word of God. We come here to listen to God's word to be taught, and we desire to hear God speak, and we we desire to forgive others and to rescue our children. We want God to save us all. We want people to come and to know him. We need his help, and yes, we need to gather here, but do we limit God to hear? Sometimes we limit God's power to this building. We do ministry here, and we forget that ministry really happens out there. This is all good stuff. But don't limit God's power to this building or over at the rock or to the Bible studies you have in your home. God has power and authority everywhere outside the promised land of this building. Do you see it? That means Jesus is king over your school's hallways. Do you see him working there? Are you working with him in your classroom, in the, on the practice field, students? 
in your dorm rooms. Jesus desired to have his name loved where people say God has no, no God talk here, but he's king there. Do you believe that? He's king in your workplace. You're not allowed to propagate. <laughs> You're not allowed to promote your faith where you work. So figure out ways to promote God where you work in your words of kindness and how you respond to people and how you act. Learn to see that God's power is everywhere available because he has authority in heaven and on earth. There's nowhere where his name should not be mentioned or known or seen in what we do and how we speak in restaurants and shopping lines in my neighborhood and my workplace and every nook and cranny of my life. He's king. Let it be so. O great and mighty Savior, wake me up to see your power so I'm not like the Philistines or unbelieving Israel, but I see the fields that are ready for harvest because you've put me there because you want people to know you and the power of your name and the glory of your name. So the God and Father and and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, this one true God, he's superior over, they are superior over every other power. They're sovereign over all affairs of life. Everything. He's sovereign. Know that he is God and know that the Lord is always to be feared. Back in the book of Samuel, we read at verse 19, after the ark had been returned, or excuse me, verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. That means it was springtime, April, May, or June. And when they had looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. And the people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as burnt offerings to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw this, and then they returned the same day to Ekron. So Beth Shemesh was this border town. It happened to be a, a town set aside for the Levites or the priests. So when they saw the Ark of the Covenant coming, they knew what to do with that Ark. And the Levites handled it right, and they took it off the cart. And there was joy because God's presence, the symbol of his presence was back. It it meant that God was happy that he hadn't abandoned them. It's back. It means God's with us, that he hasn't forsaken us, even though we deserve it. And it says they had burnt offerings, and burnt offerings were voluntary sacrifices. So they worshiped God there, these priests and the people. They were saying, we're devoted to this God, our God, the God of Israel. We're going to commit ourselves to the Lord. We're surrendering to God as our king, our rightful ruler. They were admitting their sins, and it was a great time. We skip down to verse 19. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom, the ark, who, to whom will the ark go up from here? 
What you don't know can hurt you. They had to take a peek. We don't know if the Philistines took a peek in, but the Israelites knew they shouldn't, and they did. And 70 men died, so this joyful worship turned to sorrow very soon because they did not remember to keep God holy. He had said not to touch it, the Ark of the Covenant, improperly, not, not to treat it as an unholy thing because he had made it special and unique, the place where he was to be present with his people. And what did the people Beth Shemesh do? They backed away. And like the Philistines, they said, get this thing out of here. God's too holy. It was not a a good response. They pushed God away. Instead of embracing it, instead of coming to God well, they pushed him away. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? In the book of James, he tells us how. Submit yourselves unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. How can you stand in the presence of a holy God? You humble yourself. You repent. You turn away from your sin. You admit that your hands are dirty, that they do evil things. They take what they shouldn't. You speak and you do things that you shouldn't. You admit it. You come clean. You humble yourselves and God will lift you up. Jesus answered the question when he was washing the disciples' feet. When he came to Peter, he said, Peter said, you know, Lord, what are you doing, washing feet? And Jesus said, yeah, I need to wash your feet. You don't know what's going on here, Peter, but someday you're going to understand what's going on, so let me wash your feet. And Peter said, no, you're not touching me. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have nothing to do with me. And Peter said, well, if that's the case, then wash all of me. He conceded. He humbled himself before this God. He realized he needed Christ. He surrendered to the God who's all-powerful above any other power in heaven and earth, the God who is present everywhere and rules everywhere in every nook and cranny of the world and in all the universe. He's in charge. He surrendered to him, and God lifted him up. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lift it up when we surrender to him. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of of death, of law of sin and death. He raises us up when we humble ourselves. Do you know this God? Let me close with these words. Stephen Curtis Chapman. Be still and know that he is God. 
Be still and know that he is holy. Be still, O restless soul of mine. Bow before the Prince of Peace. Let the noise and clamor cease. Be still and know that he is God. Be still and know that he is faithful. Consider all that he has done. Stand in awe and be amazed and know that he will never change. Be still and know that he is our Father. Come and rest your head upon his breast. Listen to the rhythm of his unfailing heart of love, beating for his little ones, calling each of us to come. Be still and know that he is God. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you to make us aware of how great you are. We ask you, Lord, that you will change us. We will not push you away or be afraid of you, but come humbly. And Lord, you promise to rescue, to save, to lift us up. Do your work in our hearts. In each heart here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.